This morning we are at the very center, literally and figuratively, of the Sermon on the Mount. There is as much material prior to this moment in that arguably most um, important words Jesus ever spoke as there is material that comes after it. And it just so happens, and I mean that in the greatest sense of the word with the scare quotes, it just so happens that the very center of the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' teaching on prayer. And we might infer any number of things from that, that it ended up that way, that that text ends up at the very center of the sermon. If you think about it long enough, you might understand or might get why he would have done that way. If you ever hear Jesus say, you must love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, guess what your first inclination might be? To run to prayer and say, why and how? Later, when he'll say in chapter 7, judge not, lest you be judged by the same judgment, what strength you will have, what humility you will gain in order to fulfill what he says in a text like that will largely be born, I would say, in the crucible of praying. So it makes a lot of sense why Jesus would put prayer at the center of what it means to follow God and therefore prayer at the center of what is his Sermon on the Mount, which then makes it all the more ironic that if that's the center of our life in him, why is it that you and I, for the most part, tend to put it to the edge? Why is it that last week I'm at my desk and I'm praying about something and a text message comes in and I feel like I need to answer it? Imagine that. Just use that little thought experiment for just a minute. We, we've talked about God being the, um, responsible for all things behind the existence of everything, the one to whom you owe your very existence and your next breath, and you want to be interrupted by a text message. I've got to catch that. Amazing, right? And I do it. Why is it that I'm doing that? I think maybe if we have a struggle in prayer, it's because maybe we forget what prayer is and is for. And maybe that's why every once in a while we need to be reoriented to what it is and what it's for. And surely he's going to do that today. It just so happens that his teaching on prayer is at the center of the Sermon on the Mount. It just so happens that John Calvin's largest theological treatise known as the Institutes, it's this thick. The, number, the longest chapter in the entirety of that book has everything to do with praying. Book 3, chapter 20. There's a link to it in the Ministry Resources page on the sermon page this week. Of all the things he might have said, of all the things he did say about God's sovereign control over all things, some of which you go, I think you went too far. The one thing that he knew he had to write the most about was prayer. And in the midst early of that treatise on praying, he reminds us all of a metaphor that the author of Hebrews applies to God something that we must think of who God is to us. And when we think of God that way, that helps us think about what prayer is and is for. The author of Hebrews says that the Lord is to us a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. That in this world, you will be anchored to something. And if the Lord is your anchor, then you have an anchor like no other anchor. But if that anchor breaks loose, if if your tether to that anchor of the soul breaks loose. What happens to any ship? What's going to happen to that ship now? It has no anchor. And boy, did that anchor go deep. It will drift. And when a storm comes, it will be subject to forces that only the anchor can preserve it in. 
The Lord is a sure and steadfast anchor to us, and Calvin reminds us of that early in his work in the Institutes on Praying, from which I think we could all infer that if God is our anchor, then what is prayer? It is weighing anchor. It is letting him become so real to us through our drawing near to him, to what he has for us, through that communion with him. And if we don't grasp the extent to which God is an anchor for us, we won't weigh anchor or it will break loose and then we have every reason to think we will either drift or become subject to all manner of storm. And so Jesus has much to say to us in just a few verses on prayer in the Sermon on the Mount. And I think he's going to tell us four things we can't do if God will be a sacred anchor for us. Four things we can't do. We can't neglect prayer. We can't mechanize it. We can't reduce it. And we can't presume upon it. We can't neglect it. We can't mechanize it. We can't reduce it. And we can't presume upon it. So if you're able to stand, let's lean in and see what he has to say about prayer from chapter 6, starting in verse 7, Matthew's Gospel. Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 7. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is the direct word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. I think Jesus is trying to tell us four things in these eight verses. What we can't do if we are to know God as a sacred anchor, as the author of Hebrews and both John Calvin reminds us. And the first thing we can't do is neglect prayer. And we know Jesus is saying you can't neglect it because twice in the text he doesn't say, if you pray, or should the occasion arise that it requires it, he says, when. Not if, not should, not when you get around to it, but when. Last week, we, we heard Jesus warn us of practicing those expressions of, of our sense of God's worth, our devotion um, to him in such a way that it, it sort of brings public recognition upon us. He, he warns us of that, but, but this week I think he's warning us implicitly, of thinking of prayer as just sort of something that the monks do, or the pastors do, or the people in full-time ministry do. He would say you can't neglect it. And the question is, why, why would we think, why, why might we neglect it? Why, why might prayer to us feel like something that I just don't get around to? And some of us might just say, I don't have any time for it. I, I don't have any time. Uh, you know, I get up, uh, 
I've got to bring breakfast. I've I got to get ready for whatever I do during the day. And maybe I'm responsible for people that um, whine and spit and need to be washed under their arms and things like that. And who knows? I mean, there's all sorts of things that just make you totally weary. And then you, you do what you have to do. You've got to live. You've got to eat. You've got to provide. And, and time just, it, it escapes you. And you think there's no time for it. And, and yet we all know we've, we're able to make time for some things. And, and not, our, our worlds are not wall-to-wall things that we absolutely have to do. Our, our worlds are sometimes wall-to-wall things with things we like to do sometimes. And that's totally fine. There's a place for rest. There's a place for refreshment. It's the Sabbath, for goodness sake. But to say that where there's no time for prayer is perhaps to maybe tell ourselves something that we'd like to hear in order to justify why we don't. That too betrays, though, why we think prayer maybe is so unimportant. And we may not think we have time for it because, secondly, we think there's no point to it. Um, I mentioned John Calvin. We, we in this, uh, this body, we, we take a lot of cues in our theological tradition from some of his thoughts about God's sovereign control over all things and, and that there's nothing that he's surprised by both the things that we delight in and the things that we despair over. He is not caught off guard. He's not unaware that's going to happen. He's, he's not, his hands are not tied, and so he has that control. And so some of us might think, just by powers of deduction, well, gosh, if he knows it all, if he knows the end from the beginning, if he has sovereign control over everything, then what's the point? Why pray? And surely we've asked ourselves that question if we've thought about God long enough. And yet, uh, don't bother me with details, but Jesus still, for some reason, gets up early in the morning, and he's still talking to his father, and he's still praising God for what he does, and he still asks for things. And if there's anybody that knew about God's sovereign control over stuff, it's Jesus, who is the second person of the Trinity, who is God himself. So we may have a problem with thinking about how, how God can have control over all things, and yet he still says, go ahead and pray. We may have a problem with it, but um, Jesus doesn't. He's cool with that. He rolls that way. And if it's okay with him, then maybe it should be okay with me. Maybe we neglect it because we think we have no time. Maybe we neglect it because we think we have no point. Maybe we neglect it because we just can't get any really sustained motivation. Like we've started, like January 1st came, and we said, boy, God, I'm going to pray more this year, right? And we get into it, and five minutes in, it's kind of like, I'm done with that. And look, uh, that's not a new thought or a new impulse. Uh, how, how do I know that? Uh, an archbishop of the 17th century, his name was Jeremy Taylor. He said this about prayer. Here's an archbishop. So weary are we of the duty, so glad are we to have it over, and so witty are we to find an excuse to evade it. Oh, good, he's ruling the church. Awesome, right. Um, then in the 18th century, a, a pastor named Alexander White, he actually wrote a sermon titled, It is sometimes so with me that I will rather die than pray. <laughs> Oh, we're in great hands. Oh, my gosh. Like I said, I'm praying at my desk, and a text message comes through, and I actually feel the responsibility to answer it. It's a perennial issue, and Jesus knows it. But look, in our day, we're just dealing with new things of reasons to find no sustained motivation in it. Um, Maybe you remember an article from about 10 or 15 years ago. Somebody wrote an article asking the question, is Google making us stupid? That was the name of the article. It was, it was this idea that as we were beginning to grapple with the effect the internet was having on us, um, we were becoming so dependent on, on the knowledge that we can find at the, at the tips of our fingers that we, we kind of don't seek to really know anything. We just sort of like to reference stuff, and then we forget it. And he was asking that question. Well, even now, more recently, there's a book written by a guy named Adam Alter called Irresistible, and he's talking about the effects that brains ha- screens have on our brains. And he said this 
I didn't read the book. I saw an interview with him, but I heard this quote from him. He says, in 2000, Microsoft Canada reported that the average human had an attention span of 12 seconds. By 2013, that number had fallen to eight seconds. Whereas, according to Microsoft, a goldfish, by comparison, has an average attention span of nine seconds. So who's the one hooked? I'll be here all week. I don't have this in the slide there, but look, look, why is it that we go there? Is it really, is it the blue? Is it the green? Is it the gleam? No, it's this. It isn't the body falling in unrequited love with a dangerous drug, but rather the mind learning to associate any substance or behavior with relief from psychological pain. Louis C.K., the comedian who is a, a voice that is, a, uh, shall we say, contestable at times, I think he understands it when he realizes a lot of us go to our screens because we're so bored or we feel so bad that we think this is going to help. And if I don't have, if, if, if in fact I'm so irresistibly drawn to it that my attention span is nine seconds or eight seconds, what are the odds that I can really give my heart and soul and affections to prayer? Pretty minuscule if that's your hang-up. Not everybody has that hang-up, but it is a hang-up, and it's for real. And that's why there's a, there's a, uh, a monk of the 19th century. His name was Don Chapman. He says, uh, uh, the more you pray, the better it goes. The less you pray, the worse it goes. When it comes to a sustained motivation, look, there's things that you do every day, but do you know why you do them every day? Because you started doing them regularly. It didn't just happen. I think it's the same with prayer. Now, so far, I've, I've made prayer sound like entirely like um, bench pressing <laughs> or, or developing lung capacity you know, by jogging. Far be it for me to get there. That's not what Jesus is out to do. It's not about to prove your prowess in prayer. Ah, I like that. Because I know full well that in this room, one reason why we might neglect it is because we did that for a long time, and we asked for something that seemed really reasonable of God, and he didn't answer it in the way we thought. C.S. Lewis is very candid about praying for his mother who was dying fervently, like he'd never prayed before. And guess what? She died. And he thought, I'm done with that. Maybe it's not so much that you're neglecting it. Maybe it's just like you've given up on it. Which gets us to the second thing that Jesus was warning us about. Not only do we not, can we not neglect it if God is to be a sacred anchor, sacred anchor for us, we're also, we also can't mechanize it. And I, I look for a word all week to capture what I think I'm finding there in the first verse about what he says to Gentiles. But when he says, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. He's saying that in that day, if you're a non-Jew, your belief in any number of gods out there in the panoply of Roman or Greek gods, you were with the understanding that if you just sat there long enough and said the exact right words and said them long enough and a number of many times, that finally that God would sort of kick in. Those gods would sort of kick in and do your will. So you kind of thought, you kind of, thought of prayer in the Gentile way of thinking as kind of like an instrument or, or like Harry Potter uses his wand. Like if he just says the right word at the right time, lumos, everything gets bright. Prayer is not Hogwarts. Prayer is not the force. Prayer is not an incantation that if you just say the right words, that God is kind of like a a half-deaf grandfather up in the attic that you have to sort of 
use your cane to rap on the ceiling until he wakes up and acts. He's your father. He knows what you need before you ask him. Don't turn it into an instrument. Don't turn it into a tool. It's not a wand. It's not magic. There are all sorts of things that we might properly desire. And yet, God is out to show us what we most need. There are all sorts of things that I might ask for, or you might ask for, that God does not answer in the way we hoped he would. And I don't have a good answer for you in that, other than I believe God is good. And that what he must commend to us even in those moments is that he is. And so don't turn prayer into this thing where if I can just twist his arm long enough. Look, I, I know that, that Jesus tells that parable of the persistent widow, right? She, she goes and she keeps beating on the guy's door. Let me in, let me in. He, nah, go back. Go away. You're bothering me. I'm trying to sleep. She keeps knocking. And finally, you know, he opens the door. Jesus doesn't tell that parable to give you the impression that, that God is kind of like somebody just sort of folding his hands. Like, show me what you got. He has another intention. And that intention is for us to think of him in a certain way. The, the prayer certainly has, it has something to do with requesting, but it's a lot more than requesting. But to learn what it is to pray, we have to be taught, because we all enter this world needing to be taught. Jesus' disciples asked him, teach us to pray. Teach us. We don't get it. We don't know it. We certainly don't feel like doing it. Show us what it means. We are all in a moment like this moment in that movie that came out several years ago called Gravity. Sandra Bullock, uh, George Clooney, they're above the International Space Station. Uh, an asteroid hits the station. Thing blows up. She barely survives the collision. She gets in a, an abandoned craft, and she's got no radio um, uh, ability to communicate with Earth. All she can do is hear others. And so in this scene, in her desperation... She, she actually picks up on a radio frequency of a, of a nearby Russian satellite of, of guys in that satellite who apparently are, are schnookered and are trying to make sounds like wolves. And, but listen to her and think of it how all of us are like her in a way. Oh. 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 Woof, woof. Oh. Woo, woo. Oh. Oh. Woo, woo. Woof. prayer for me or is it too late 
I mean, I'd say one for myself, but I've never prayed in my life, so. Nobody ever taught me how. Perhaps for some of us, prayer comes just sort of naturally and intuitively, and we just do it at the drop of a hat, and that's a wonderful thing, and, and we, were, we were cultivated in that. Maybe some of us, though, are like her. Nobody taught me how to pray. Well, Jesus has come to teach us how to pray, and, and so not only is he out to say, look, don't, you can't neglect this, and no, please don't turn it into magic. He also is wanting us to make sure that we don't reduce prayer into something far less than what it is. Look, um, I'm sure there's some YouTube video out there somewhere of all the instances in which uh, somebody, like, breaks protocol with the queen, like Elizabeth. You know, they, they, they touch her in the wrong way, or they stand up at the right moment, or wrong moment, or they bow, or they, like, give her a noogie. Like, you can't, you can't do that. And, and we all ask ourselves in America, why is it that we can't do that? And they just look at us like, don't you know? And um, it's just like this protocol, and we don't get it. We do it, but we don't get it. And I think maybe it's very possible that many of us think, you know, I, he says we're supposed to pray. We do it in meals. We do it in worship. But, like, I don't know why. Well, Jesus is here to teach us why. He's here to help us make us not reduce it into something far less than what it is. And he does that through the prayer itself. He's here to remind us first and foremost that when you pray, you are praying to a person. Not a code, not an ethic, not a philosophy, not an ideal, not to a statue. You're praying to a living person who is one yet three. And that this person is someone to be reckoned with in a particularly, paradoxically, wonderful way. Way? Way. Our Father, you who are in heaven, hallowed be your name. In that phrase alone, that is the north star of our prayer, to know that we are praying to someone who is both a father and one who is hallowed, the one who is both tender and the one... When you go see the Lion King on July 19th, again, and they hold up Simba and all the gazelles, and the hyenas, and Rafiki, and they all bow. That's hallowed. That is realizing that you're in the presence of something that the really only proper response in that moment is to bow. Bow before a father. You speak to him as one who is both tender unto you because he's a father, but one for whom you don't just sort of speak too casually to because he is hallowed. He's good, but he's not safe, C.S. Lewis, right? To speak of Aslan, right? Jeremiah 9 says, look, do not boast in your strength, do not boast in your wisdom, do not boast in your knowledge, but if you want to boast in anything, boast in this, that you know me, the one who is the Lord. Boast in that. Let that be the ballast of your soul. You're praying to a person. George MacDonald, I've mentioned him more so in recent weeks. He, he was the greatest influence on C.S. Lewis. He, he says this, stick with it. It's sort of a, a lengthy prayer, but I, I think you need to hear it. He answers a question for you. He says, if God is so good as you represent him, 
And if he knows all that we need, and, and better far than we do ourselves, then why should it be necessary to ask him for anything? We, we've already asked that question. And this is George MacDonald's answer. I answer this. What if God knows prayer to be the thing we need first and most? What if the main object in God's idea of prayer be the supplying of our great, our endless need, the need of himself? Hunger may drive the runaway child home, and he may or may not be fed at once, but he needs his mother more than his dinner. Communion with God is the need of the soul beyond all other need, and prayer is the beginning of that communion. We may ask for all sorts of things in this world that make absolutely sense, make total sense with the heart of God in justice, in mercy, in care, in miracle, in deliverance, in healing. It is right for us to pray for Mickey Beeland. But what we most need is to believe that he is and that he's good. And to that, Jesus bids us to pray. One of the things that Tim Keller said on on Wednesday night in the talk that we heard about belief is that, look, if you don't believe in God, if you don't believe that there is anything, any transcendent idea of, of good or of justice or anything, then the whole idea of a human right is just a fantasy. You have to make it up. You have to ground it in something that you can't prove, and therefore you can't really make any feel, anyone feel obligated to, to acknowledge. But if you believe that there is someone to whom you pray who is hallowed, who is above all, who is responsible for all, then this whole idea of dignity, of rights, of a responsibility to demonstrate benevolence to people, even to your enemies, on that ground you can stand. Because he is your father, and he is hallowed. Prayers to a person. Prayer is with a purpose. All of these are going to be peace. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. You, you get to know someone by asking them all sorts of questions, and they will tell you where they're from, and they tell you what you do, what they do, and in that you learn something important from them. But you really start to know somebody when you find out what their greatest desires are. We are what we desire. We, we reveal ourselves by where our desires really take us, and you know that. And what... Jesus' greatest desire and his greatest purpose, therefore, is to see that which is true of the heavenly realm become true of the earthly realm. Where the, to borrow that poem line from Malcolm Geith, where the story of heaven becomes the story of earth. That's our purpose. That's our prayer. Where God's will goes where his kingdom goes. That's what he calls us to. If we belong to him, then our purpose that has to kind of be in the background of everything else we ask for is, does this fit with his interests for the eternal world? A world in which there would be no more shootings at a campus in Charlotte. In which there would be no more shootings at a a Jewish synagogue in San Diego in which there would be no more opioid crisis, in which there would be no more instances of a 37-year-old woman going into the hospital, be treated for a UTI, and end up dying because of an allergic reaction to antibiotics. None of that. For the kingdom to come, those things will be pushed out. And of course, that speaks of a moment 
at some undisclosed time, but it also speaks of the present. C.S. Lewis, in his space trilogy, the second of the three, it's called Paralandra, and it really is an allegory for, for creation and fall and redemption, and I commend it to you. There's a, there's a moment in that um, book where um, the protagonist, whose name is Dr. Ransom, has a conversation with the king of this realm, and the, the king says to him, when the time is right for it and the 10,000 circlings are nearly at an end, we will tear the sky curtain and deep heaven shall become familiar to the eyes of our sons as the trees and the waves to ours. And then Ransom asks, will that be the end? And the king responds, who spoke of an end? Your thoughts are unlike ours. About that time, we shall not be far from the beginning of all things. That's the kingdom. That's the purpose to which we must tether all of our prayers. Because if we tie it to anything just short of that, we will come up short. Every time there's a shooting, maybe less so now because it's kind of been banned. is almost a taboo thing to say. You'll hear people tweet out or email out our thoughts and prayers are with the grieved, right? And so now, more or less, there's like this trigger reflexive reaction when, you, when anybody hears the word thoughts and prayers. And so this is a, um, an article from about four years ago after another shooting in which the Daily News says, God isn't fixing this. Enough with your prayers. We've got to do, you know, reform. And look, um, we can get into that conversation. But Alan Jacobs, who's an author down in Texas, he, he wrote this in response to um, that kind of idea. He says, look, this is what prayer is. Prayer ought to be fuel of the Spirit, the fuel that gives us the strength and the hope that alone can sustain work for justice and peace. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Make me an instrument. Set me to work. In these dark days, let me at least light a candle. When we understand prayer to be praying with a purpose, we understand both the hope that is on a far horizon and the hope that is meant to spill back onto this one. And that he has given us the privilege to be involved in something like that. We pray to a person, we pray with a purpose. But we do ask. He's fine with us asking for all sorts of things. He even says, ask me for what? Provision. Give us this day our daily bread. When Jesus says to him, of himself in John, he says, I am the bread of life. He is speaking of a, a spiritual sustenance that he gives to us such that we do not hunger for other things in the same way we hunger for the satisfaction that we have in him of being his, of knowing that we belong to him, of being his child and his daughter. We hunger for that, but we also hunger for things that are material. And he has no problem with us asking for that, whether for ourselves or for others who are in lack. If you, if you leave out, if you think that you can't ask for those material things that you need, then you have turned God into being somebody who is so heavenly minded that he is of no earthly consequence. And yet if you only make this your prayer, if you only let that which is of material importance to you become the focus of your prayers, then, then your prayer for what is, for what isn't enough. Look, Jesus meant it when he said, man shall not live by bread alone. Plenty of things you might rightly desire. Plenty of things that might make your life simpler. But it will not be enough. The 
He does call us to ask for provision for our bodies, whether for ourselves or for others. But he also asks for provision for our hearts. And this might be the hardest thing to hear him say. We pray to a person. We pray with a purpose. We pray for provision. We also pray for a heart inclined to pardoning. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. The Bible likes to speak of sin as that which is like a debt. You sin against God, it's like you've incurred something from him. And the only way in which we can have our account set straight is if that debt is forgiven. Because he knows we can't pay it, therefore, therefore has to be forgiven. And when it comes to this life, look, if you don't know how to pardon one another, you will, life will be a very different experience for you. Because there will be too many moments where somebody will have taken something from you and if they can't pay it back, then you will be estranged. And that will be your life. And that will be their life. And it will be a loss. And so Jesus knows that if there's anything that we need to learn how to pray for in this life is the strength to be full of pardoning. He knows that forgiveness has to be so foundational to our existence that it, that's where you find the strength for it is in the, the capacity to pray, and, and so to, to put it not a little bit too glibly, but Anne Lamott, who I think got married a couple weeks ago, she says this, Earth is forgiveness school. You might as well start at the dinner table. Um, that way you can do this work in comfortable pants. We learn how to be a pardoning heart here. And that doesn't come to us naturally. When you are hurt, you know your first impulse is to want to hurt back. You feel threatened, you want to threaten. You feel demoralized, you want to demoralize somebody else. And that is the natural thing. And that's why Jesus says, I know, I know. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. There's strength for praying, for a pardoning heart, and knowing who the person is, and knowing what his purpose is in bringing the kingdom to here. And that means if pardon is so central to our heart, then we have to think about sin in such a sober way that it leads us to the last dimension of what prayer is. And that is the prayer for protection. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. What a a curious thing for Jesus to say. Was Jesus say that, does God lead us into temptation? Does he tempt us? Uh, Remember last fall we read James 1.3, God does not tempt. Jesus after he's baptized, where he's led out into the wilderness, by whom? The Spirit, to be tempted by whom? God? No. By the one who's in an adversarial posture towards God. That one tempts. So, what does this mean? You and I know, if we look back on our lives, at all the things that we succumbed to, of all the little seductions that we followed, it would make perfect sense why we would ask God to say, Help me not succumb to the forces I find within me that respond to the forces that are outside me. We pray for protection from those forces that are without, those forces that are within, because our hearts are capable of falling into the deepest of lies. Do you see how these all go together? To pray to a person with a purpose for 
provision, a pardoning heart, and protection. If you leave any of them out, if you, if you leave out purpose or provision, then, then you turn God into sort of a blowhard or just somebody that wants to throw his weight around. If you, if you take out the idea of pardoning or protection, then, then you are saying that you are really blind to your own capacity to sin. They all go together. And in that, we have to be apprenticed in praying. We can't neglect it. We can't mechanize it. We can't reduce it. And that leads us to the last thing he says. You can't presume upon it. Some people argue that the last verse isn't part of the prayer, and yet I don't think you can make a good case for that. But the last verse is the, perhaps the most unsettling thing Jesus says. If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Uh, what? Across the centuries, there have been all those theological questions that people like to ask, like how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. Um, St. Augustine answered the question, uh, what was God doing before he made all things? And he says, well, that's easy. He was fashioning hell for the curious. He was being funny, by the way, on that one. Ha, 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 Augustinian humor. But the question that some people ask that's rather poignant is, does God ever listen to the prayers of those who do not follow him? And it's an interesting question, and I'm sure there's a whole wide spectrum of debate on that question, but just consider what happens in John chapter 3 when Nicodemus comes to Jesus in the middle of the night and says, Rabbi, you make us very curious. What are you out to do? And Jesus and Nicodemus have that exchange. And in that moment, Nicodemus has not fallen in with Jesus. He's intrigued, but he goes to him under cover of darkness because he knows if he gets seen like that, oh my gosh, talk about the tweets. But he has this exchange with Jesus, and Jesus knows that Nicodemus doesn't get it, and and Jesus knows that Nicodemus doesn't buy it. But Jesus was fine to listen and fine to chat. And in that moment, I think it's reasonable to infer from that moment that does God ever hear the prayers of those who don't follow him? Jesus was hind to listen to the inquiries of the one who didn't follow him. But here's the question. Of whom is God their father? When a kid, gosh, you've seen these videos of, of guys that come home, moms and dads that they come home from service over a, a year of tour of duty and they dress up in a, in a costume and they show up at the, 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 the high school cafeteria and they pull the mask off and the kid sees him and just, and we all weep because <laughs> he hadn't seen his daddy in a year. He knows who his daddy is. He knows who his daddy is in a nanosecond. Who knows that God is their father? The one who knows God went to great lengths and at great cost to make us his child. That's whose God is their father. The one who sees the cross and sees themselves as the beneficiary of one who had to come to recognize that, cheer up, you're worse than you know. But cheer up, you're more adored than you could imagine. And the cross proves that. And the cross shows us that he is our father. And therefore, Jesus saying here, you must forgive as you have been forgiven. There is no serious prayer for forgiveness except on the lips of a forgiver. 
says a guy named Adolf Schlatter. Those who know they've been forgiven are those who feel compelled to be about the work of forgiveness. And therefore, they do not presume upon a father to whom they may rightly address their prayers because they know that he's their daddy because of what he paid to make them his child. How do we land this plane? Book um, referenced a couple weeks ago, Austin Cleon. He just wrote a book called Keep Going. And in that book, he, he shared with us what his little prayer guide looks like. It's this. It's, he just takes a, surely he doesn't crumple his paper, um, but he takes his paper and he draws a line down the center of it. And on one left, he says, thanks for. And on the other side, he says, help me. And he writes that stuff down. And so in keeping with his own life mantra, steal like an artist, we did. And Stacey Chacon made it even better. And that's the insert in your, do- in your bulletin this week. What? A bulletin? We do those? Brothers and sisters, we can always begin again if prayer has not been our thing. If we have forgotten to see it as a means by which God's sacred, his, his role of being a sacred anchor becomes even more real to us. We've offered you a prompt a way to begin to focus your thoughts and your times. I've, where's mine? It's around here somewhere. I've started mine. There's, there's my start. It's a way to focus yourself. A way to give attention to what it is that we're out to do. Of what we give thanks for. Of what we need forgiveness for. Of what, in ways we want to pray for others. In ways we need help ourselves. And that just scratches the surface of all the things we might pray about. This is for you. And the template for it is going to be on the sermon page today, so you can print 10,000 of these if you want. I'll need it. I'll need it. That abbot I mentioned to you earlier, he said this, pray as you can. Do not pray as you can't. Take yourself as you find yourself and start from that. Maybe you start from this. And if you're taking up the invitation that I laid before us all last week about perhaps you fasting one meal a week for the next eight weeks, we're going to have a prayer guide that will be up on our website starting earlier this week. Things that will rotate in, things to pray for our world, our region, our church. If you'd like to fast and pray one meal a week, we'll provide that for you. It's a way we can all begin again Again, not to prove our prowess, not to think of prayer like mastering a bench press or of eating our fiber, but of ways in which we might know God as a sacred anchor in the way that he intended. I'll leave you with this quote from a guy named John Flavel, who was a a theologian of the 17th century. Few musicians can take an instrument and play upon it without some time and labor to tune it. Few Christians can say with David, oh, my heart is fixed, oh God, it is fixed. And so when you go into any duty, take your heart aside and say, oh, my soul, I am now engaged in the greatest work that a creature was ever employed about. I am going into the awful presence of God upon business of everlasting moment. Oh, my soul, leave trifling now. Be composed, be watchful. This is no common work. It is soul work. It is work for eternity. So let's get busy.
but let's get into resting. Let's pray now for that rest. Father, we are weak and frail. We are easily distracted. And we are really good about turning any good means of grace into something that we think is the measure of our worth to you. Surely, Father, would you keep us from that? Surely for all of this talk and teaching on prayer that your Son has graciously given us, it would not be so that we would measure ourselves by it, but only so that we would run to it and find you to be, in fact, a sacred anchor. Help us, Father, to know you, to, be, to know that we're known by you, to come for us, to commend yourself to us, to hold us when everything else in this world is dropping us. Help us to see this of eternal moment and help us to do this together. In the name of Jesus who taught us to pray, amen.